0: And welcome to Happy Place, the show that asks you to forget what's happening out there and concentrate just for a little bit on what's going on in here. I'm pointing at my head. I'm Fern Cotton and today we're talking to artist and Britain's most celebrated portrait artist, Jonathan Yo. When
1: someone t- looks at you, it actually slows down your cognitive... Processes, you actually are less able to think about other things. And you can see how that must have happened in an evolutionary way, because if you're out in the sort of savannas or the kind of like in the wilds or in this like potentially hostile world, then someone suddenly being aware of your presence meant you had to make a decision whether it was okay to stick around or do a runner.
0: Even if the last time you held a paintbrush was in school, do not fret. Jonathan has a brilliant way of getting inside your mind. And if you're unfamiliar with his work, please, please go and have a quick look. There's some links in the show notes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the
2: professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash achieve today.
0: Now though, here's the show. Thank you so much for uh, saying yes to coming on the podcast. This is a treat.
1: It's an honour. Thank you, Fern.
0: I've probably looked at you on a screen more than any other human during lockdown because we've been doing our portrait sessions, which for me is like the biggest honour because as you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of your work. So to get painted by you is just like mind-blowing every time. So we've been doing this, this lovely sort of... Zoom series where we're we're talking to each other from our respective homes on screens and and you're painting me how how are you finding this because I'm you know one in a long line of people that you're painting now how's that that process been for you
1: it's interesting I and mean, obviously these things are this came up because of necessity in some ways but it's something I'd slightly wondered about before because. Um, obviously my in my day job I use, I'm use i used to getting people to come and sit for me in the studio and I guess I've always convinced myself over the years that that's better because the alternative was to take photos of people uh, and photos obviously don't move they're a one-eyed viewpoint um, and they're static and they don't show the personality, you don't get to see how people react and move to things you don't see the three-dimensionality of someone's face and you can't change the lighting as you want as you go along um, and actually, what I found is that because of the sort of, you know, technology of recent years, i.e. sort of FaceTime and Skype and that kind of thing, and being able to see people while you're talking to them remotely, some of those problems are overcome by that. It does still present some other problems, which is that, you know, you have a the limitations anyway of the kind of video calling and the fact that it's fairly low bandwidth and you don't get to really see the detail in the shadows and that kind of thing. The main thing is you don't really see the shape of someone's face. Uh, then I, I slightly lean on what I assume and what I remember from when I've seen people. So I've been lucky in a way so far um, that I've been painting people I knew already, although I'm definitely finding it easier when I've, for the people I've spent a lot of time with in the past rather than less so. But it's a really interesting thing. It's, definitely, it, it, it's producing a slightly different kind of portrait, but they're not actually necessarily less good. They're just different.
0: I mean I I cannot wait to see the end result of mine. We're we're sort of what would you say over halfway now?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I'm I feel like this sort of I mean it's definitely it's I feel it's like a nice painting and it's definitely partly you and it's like all the other it's a, it's a kind of I guess these things are a bit more like snapshots than completely or, or little interviews than complete biographies which i feel that portraits usually are if you spend a lot of time on them
0: that's interesting
1: but um so i i I don't know whether it'll you'll feel it's a recognizable one or whether it's sort of completely representative i think certainly it it captures something and um it's quite fun in a way that you know i i I guess i haven't had the, the sort of usual excuse of being able to work on something as long as I need to, because it forces you to do things a little bit more instinctively.
0: So that's interesting. So when you you have a live sitting and and you've got someone there and and you're painting them for hours, days, however long it might take, is your end goal to create an image of them that does feel biographical, that you get the whole of them, the complete story of, of who they are? Is that part of what you're aiming for?
1: It's a very good question. This is getting into the kind of philosophy of what a portrait is. I think certainly that's in your mind what your aim is. You know, arguably a portrait, inevitably, especially a painted portrait, is as much a document of that relationship as a full biography. Because you only know what you've seen of someone. But you definitely get a bit more having spent time with them. A photograph is absolutely what was happening at that moment in that field of view. Uh but that's all it is. Uh, whereas you know, the portrait you, it is made over time, you're painting different parts of the picture literally at different times. Uh, of you know, of the day and of maybe sometimes on different days they might be in different moods you might be in a different mood You know, if someone's you know kind of had a great night's sleep and they're in in feeling positive about life they'll look different they've just flown in from somewhere or have been up all night because of the kids or having a bad day at work or in their relationship thing and so the advantage you've got with a portrait is you do it over a bit of time in my case over several sittings sometimes you know a dozen sittings but over several months and so bit by bit you piece together the sort of jigsaw which is a, usually ideally a bit wider than you'd see if you just saw them once and the judgment i guess is in knowing how much to bring in of the different elements you don't want to see show people just having a great time but you certainly don't want to have them you know focus too much if they were having one or two bad days and they were that wasn't necessarily representative of their life overall
0: I find it fascinating. I mean, because, you know, I like to paint, but it's on a very amateur kind of for fun at home level. And I still strive just for likeness, really. And I think that, of course, all good portraits do capture an essence of what you're talking about there, you know, getting that mood or their story or what the narrative around that time in their life has been like. And I think that people are perhaps not as capable of picking up those sort of perhaps nuanced facial expressions or, or, or feelings that are afoot these days, and maybe that's well, obviously, you're trained in that area because of your job, but maybe because we're looking at screens so much, we have diluted our own ability to to read people in that way. Do you think that's true?
1: It's interesting. I, I think maybe we are. You're right that we are. Everything's quite fast and edited and 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 sampled, and we don't necessarily spend as long reading the little subtle expressions and micro expressions. I think we are pretty hardwired to do it as animals, and therefore we do pick these things up. I think an example is that when we, we've all seen films or, or seen computer games where human faces, sometimes ones we're supposed to know. Are being shown and there's always something that feels a bit wrong we yeah whereas the you know, graphic the you know, vfx and graphics can do so many effects so convincingly and wonderfully and yet somehow the human part of it always feels a bit wrong and that's not because they spend less effort on those sometimes they spend more i think it's just the fact we are so because it's important yeah. for our survival to know if there's something a bit wrong or a bit fake or, or or unreal or unnatural about what you're looking at when it's another human being It's deep in us. And so I think there's a bit of both, perhaps.
0: This might sound a bit out there, but um, I can certainly I mean, I there are similarities in in what we do, I guess, because when I'm interviewing someone much more so in the flesh, you will feel a, a certain energy. And it's nothing to do with their facial expression necessarily or or even what they're saying. But it's just a bit of a vibe and it could be a wonderful you know, experience, or you might just feel like, gosh, it's a standoffish vibe. There's, a, there's an energy there. We can certainly all experience that with people we live with, people that we know inside out or family members that we might visit a lot. You know when there's that weird energy or vibe and something's going on with them, but they're not willing to show anything. I wonder if you ever look to pick that up or if you do pick it up and if you implement that and you, and you use that for, for what you're creating
1: you're absolutely right that that's a very palpable thing if i'm honest i would say i don't look for it and when it happens it's not something you're conscious of often till afterwards that you've just picked up on it and channeled it because you, you you're trying to basically translate what you're looking at onto the canvas and i think there's it's also wrapped up in some other things one of the things i find when i'm painting often is i can get really stuck on a part i think well there's something wrong with the mouth say and it's only when I've like, changed it five times and it still hasn't got any better that I ch- start working on something else in the face or something in the way they're sitting or standing. And suddenly it all looks fine. And I think we do connect lots of things in our brain without knowing it. And obviously that what mood someone's in, whether they're feeling boisterous or retiring or confident or shy... Often comes from the way they're standing, the way their bones are hanging, and whether the of head is in relation to their shoulders and all that kind of thing. But we maybe identify it with a particular expression that we recognise as well, and so mm. put the emphasis on that. So it's it's a bit more of a holistic thing, I think, um, because you know we are physical creatures. Every part of us, you know, when you're really animated, every part of you is moving.
0: I really want to kind of get stuck into. Um, your story because we've been chatting a lot when we've been doing these sittings but it's probably been more about me yabbing on about my stuff and what I'm doing and I'm so fascinated in in how you got to where you are because to become one of the most renowned and respected portrait artists is no mean feat I mean the art world is notoriously hard to get recognition in you know it's it's almost impossible I think if you went to A careers advisor or whatever and said, I want to be an artist, they would sort of laugh because it is just one of those almost sort of impossible feats. So if we go right back to the start, so you went to an academic school in London and correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't necessarily feel like you were you were excelling in in the areas that you were being pushed in there.
1: Yes, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, also, this is you know, in, in the 80s. So we were it was quite structured. There was this assumption that you did sort of like the standard subjects and you had to do them in the prescribed way very well. And the arts and other things were a bit of an add on. It was seen as hobbies, certainly not as careers. And I had no one in the family who was in the art world or anything remotely like it. So it was certainly something which didn't occur to me till I was doing it, really, that it might be a career. I just kept doing it because I enjoyed it. And I was ended up trying to make a living as an artist after stuff. I left school, failed miserably, uh, <laughs> and ended up going and slightly under duress from my parents, studying English and film studies at university for a while. But I just carried on painting. I I loved doing it, but I was it certainly was a, a frustration and a worry that I didn't think it was a pro- possible career. So I was trying to get in as much as possible before I had to go and get a proper job.
0: But isn't it still seen as that today? Somewhat like I always feel like I felt the same at school. I wasn't great at anything but I loved painting but it always felt like oh well that's that's fun well done that's a bit of fun for you but it's not something that is perhaps given the amount of energy and attention that I think it deserves because certainly as an adult and now as as a parent I can see the the benefits of art and Um, on a really integral emotional level for my kids to express themselves, I think that's more important than doing maths, quite frankly, because especially for my son, who's a really intense character, and he often has trouble expressing what he's feeling and these night terrors that he's having. But if I give him some paper and some pens, he just pours all this stuff out. And I I do feel that you know we need to move on from that slightly. It feels like quite an archaic uh, way of thinking about quite um an important life skill perhaps.
1: I feel like it, it has moved a bit but but quite slowly. I think you hit found something interesting there as well, which is that and I was pretty lucky early on I got um I, I managed to sort of like just make a living in those early years when most people give up because it's so hard. And part of that's because I found doing portraits relatively easy. Uh, And there was always just enough. There's always someone who wanted me to paint them, and so I could keep that, keep it going until I had a bit more freedom to explore other things. Um, And obviously now I still, I mean, most things are still face related in some way, but obviously quite broad. But the fact is, I mean, I think everyone thinks, you know, I I, I still get lots of people, including friends and family, sort of who I think make the assumption that life is just as like wafting into the studio and doing a bit of painting for as long as I feel like it and going home and everything's great. The reality is that, you know, on a a good week for me is when I probably spend three days of the week painting. And on a bad week, I'm maybe only one. Because actually... Yeah, you know, part of the, the whole thing is I mean, you know, obviously you still have to think about making a living and you know, running a little business, which is effectively what it is. But yeah, you know, what you are expected, you know, you, expected to do, you, know, you do exhibitions because that's how you get the work out there. You have to do books, you get, end up doing interviews, and you have know, endless meetings about all kinds of things which might or might not happen. And when they do happen, take a lot of time to organize. And yeah, you know, the very very few artists have a whole infrastructure of people who can do that entirely for them, and therefore actually when I think about it I try not to but if it was my hobby and I didn't have a very busy day job I might be spending almost as much time actually painting as I am when it is my job and so I guess it certainly depends what you're doing it for I think you know a lot of people I mean uh, like to do it because it makes them happy and as you say it's a way of you know thinking things through and investigating things and reflecting on things and actually you don't need to necessarily have the kind of you know be anointed as a sort of you know, professional artist or whatever it is people think it is in order to do that and actually to, to really get a lot out of it
0: absolutely I mean going off piece slightly but I um I came up with this charity initiative for the Prince's Trust last year like a happy place charity initiative based around art and creativity because it was something that they were trialing anyway um, especially for young people that had experienced you know, trauma and and really dark times. And I sat in on a couple of these art therapy sessions ahead of us launching this initiative, which is called The Great Create. And it was powerful. Like, you know, I I kind of vented my own troubles or whatever through the process, but to see a bunch of young people who really didn't know each other very well sit and perhaps weren't able to articulate or didn't feel comfortable talking, to see them sort of sit and pour out whatever feelings or whatever it was onto the page was quite extraordinary and again perhaps art needs to be reframed at school so it is used as more of a therapeutic thing rather than you're good at this or you're bad at this I don't know
1: it's a very good idea I mean it always puzzles me how you can really uh, sort of score art at a level or GCSE level when actually the sort of I think the skills which are supposed to be valuable then actually are less so if you do do it more seriously later on. You know, being able to sort of like do standard things in a kind of recognisable way is valued early on, but actually, as you know, the more you do it, especially if you're doing it professionally, actually doing things differently from everyone else is more valuable. And so, yeah. encouraging people to, to sort of like make mistakes and get things wrong, I find that I'm endlessly doing it, whether it's because I'm showing my own kids how to do it or other people. And especially I think portraiture is a good example of that, because obviously on one level, you don't want to look completely unlike the person you're drawing. But at the same time, I think if you get too hung up on, it it has to be a photographic representation of someone. You miss something more important, which is an interpretation of who they are shown in some other, possibly much more imaginative way.
0: And perhaps also your enjoyment and experience of doing it because if you're so uptight about and I get like this you know it has to be perfect and it has to look a certain way that element of enjoyment goes and you know my my dad's a really brilliant painter he he was a sign writer for years and years and now he paints for fun now he's retired and my mum's kind of jumped in on it for for you know purely therapeutic reasons really so every Friday they, they paint all afternoon and my mum has kind of already established a really cool style And she's just enjoying it. And I think that's what needs to be encouraged more for sure, that people just give it a try. Especially, you know, this is why it's lovely to have this chat now during this strange time we're going through and everybody kind of being robbed of what we would usually do for fun. People are getting the paints out for the first time and they are giving it a go for the first time. And it's I feel like art has sort of accelerated in that way because everyone's just trying it and that's such a a joyful thing. So, look, going back to your story and, and you being at university, as you said they're sort of under duress, you, you started studying film and English, and then you had a, a really tough time and you got very sick.
1: Yeah, uh, that's, that's right. I mean, I, I, had, I had Hodgkin's disease, which is a, um, a lymphoma, so lymphatic cancer. Um, although, I mean, I have to say, I, I think if I'd got it 30 years earlier, it would have been really bad. Um, by the time I got it it was like I think eighty five percent curable. So it was still a year of treatment to go through. At that time it was well, you're right, it was that time when I was I think I was twenty two when I had it. So in a funny way, in retrospect, um I w I actually get more and more thankful for it from the point of view that I was definitely at that point about to make a decision about what sensible job I could do because I wasn't gonna do the thing I wanted to do. And it made me so pig headed and determined to do what I wanted to do. That I, but and, and also at the same time, in a way, I think it made other people were being kind of were so worried about giving me bad news that they didn't want to tell me I was rubbish or that I shouldn't be doing something as ridiculous as as trying to make a living as an artist. So it gave, it bought me a year or two of determination and sort of leeway to sort of like have a crack at it, um, which is quite, anyone who's tried it will know that those first few years are so crucial because there's so many things stacked against you. Um, so there's that and then I think another thing which I realised which I think something we, we touched on before is that I, I was definitely I definitely had ADD when I was at school although it wasn't diagnosed until about 5 or 10 years ago because it didn't exist then effectively mm. no one, it I don't think I mean, there was I think it was certainly in, in this country there was very little recognition of it and um, uh, in retrospect you know I was sent to psychologists and everything because of all the sort of problems with sort of like disturbing classes and all that sort of thing and it was put down as being, you know, either you're, you, are, um, you know, unable to sort of focus, you know, kind of discipline yourself or whatever it is. Um, but it's an interesting thing. I've, I've 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 sort of pieced together so much of what I did well and badly over the years, and it does seem to relate to that. Uh, and I also see that, as far as I can tell, a lot of other of the most creative people I've come in contact with over the years seem to have very similar uh, kind of symptoms, as it were. And so this interesting thing there. It definitely does make some th- aspects of your life m- more difficult. The fact that you can't basically choose what to focus on a lot of the time. But it also has huge advantages from a creative point of view, because actually when you are interested in something, you find it. it's the opposite of what it sounds like. It's very easy to focus on it to the point that you can spend many hours, maybe, you know, kind of like 10, 15 hours doing something and being unaware of time passing and really, really sort of digging into it. Whereas, yeah. You know, otherwise you might be sort of like you're know, pulled onto other things which you know are more urgent so the one of the things about it is you know you you, you slightly kind of have this warped sense of what you're supposed to be doing and what's urgent and that is you know can cause problems in other areas of life mm. it's very useful for getting for like creative investigation and really sticking at something
0: yeah because you know in 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 your line of work patience is the key i guess you know you can't be haphazard about things or rush through things you need to have that absolute laser point focus on on what you're doing and like you say it could be for a, a whole day that you're you're in that headspace so it's interesting that you found a way to to channel that in a in a positive way how how do your symptoms manifest today and 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 how did they at school and you know were they dealt with appropriately in any sense because as you say you know th- these any any sort of mental health discussion we have today was not happening when we were kids and that's why I think we're all so determined to to have this open conversation now so that younger generations can experience hopefully a smoother ride or at least um, feel comfortable talking about things
1: yeah no, I totally agree i mean, it certainly it certainly wasn't dealt with at all when i mean even, even those, I mean, this is the again yeah this is the late eighties, so you know, even dyslexia was a sort of slightly kind of you know weird and out there a concept and and a lot of people didn't really fully trust that it was a sort of thing and I think you know increasingly we were learning that, that these things you know aren't, i mean i the question whether they're disorders even I'd think that they were like just like different were di wired in slightly different ways. And education traditionally suited some people very well, and and not others. Uh, and therefore, uh, I think certainly it's something which, in terms of how it manifests now, I mean, you know, I, I lose things a lot. <laughs> I still, uh, like I say, I think you know, you, you, it's 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 sort of you have this. Uh, it's a it's a funny thing because it's it is yes, you can get distracted, but only if it's on some things when you're not. You haven't sort of like created the sort of focus for it. It's very hard. So, okay, well, the classic thing is it's very hard. I find it impossible to revise for exams. No, I think they've actually done scientific sort of studies in terms of inform- brain scans, brain, scans of brain activity of people with it, without it. And what happens is, I think it's the frontal cortex, which is the one one of the jobs is to when something's urgent or important or you know almost dangerous or risky. Then for most people, that becomes more active. And so they can, you know, solve the sort of urgent problem, whatever it is. When you've got ADD, it does the opposite. It shuts down, and 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 you are actually less able to do to do whatever the thing is that's urgent. And it's one of those extraordinary things. Now, there are ways. I think more and more now they're 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 learning that there are ways you can train yourself. You know, meditation is very good. Various things. There's obviously been medication for years. I take that sometimes, and we know I have to concentrate on something. And just knowing that it's a problem and how it manifests itself, I think that understanding more than anything else for me was just a huge eye-opener and makes you just able to kind of have you know, create mechanisms for coping with it. Um, so knowing something is a problem because of you, not because you're just like doing something wrong, and therefore how it might be a problem if you don't follow the little route you've worked out to, to fix it um that more than anything else is is I think the most 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 useful thing
0: and as well as you being able to understand the difficulties you may have and actually channel them positively into painting does painting actually help with it does it actually you know help um you outside of that space does it give you perhaps some peace that you wouldn't have if you didn't paint
1: Yes, I mean, I think both really I think it sort of it helps because it's actually it is a job that is suited to that. I think a lot of creative things from writing music to craft of all kinds um uh are suited to that making things effectively um and uh but I think also painting. I don't know. I don't know how relate, how related it is fundamentally. I, I not I think that I probably would enjoy painting no matter what because I love the activity. I love seeing something evolve, and have actually you know have got something done over time is a wonderful thing. Whether I be sort of like any less happy doing something else, I don't know. I I kind of I think um, it, 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 I can totally see this. I am very bad at making music and all kinds of other things, but I love doing that as well. I think that sort of it is that satisfaction of starting something and not really knowing where it's going to end up you know and 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 definitely what seems to happen is this advantage of having done something for years is you sort of convince yourself you've kind of nailed it and you've got a process for it and almost always the best things come when you end up doing something different from what you planned or just do it on autopilot you know if you're not really actually sort of overthinking what you're doing but just allowing yourself to um, go into not thinking about totally other things either but just sort of I guess there's that you know, people talk about it in different ways, sort of being in the zone or, you know, in the flow. or you know, um, But I think certainly th- that there's something about the, the act of just naturally being involved in an activity of making something where you're not consciously making decisions all the time.
0: Yeah, it's meditative, isn't it? It's that sense of escapism from thought. You know, I get that on my tiny level of of you know, having a hobby of painting, I can sense that if I get into that flow, it's a really lovely space, very free space to be in. Going back to when you were at that sort of crossroads where you could have been looking for your sensible job, then you fell ill and actually you then had that determination that, oh no, this is what I want to do. I wonder what your feelings are about If we are actually all capable of our biggest dreams, we reach a point of this in life where we go, I really want to do this and I have a bit of self-belief but maybe not enough self-belief so I'll go down the slightly safer route. Do you think that we've all got, we're all capable of doing what we really, really are dreaming of?
1: I think very few artists would ever say that they are so confident about what they're doing that they don't have any worries about it. I certainly, I constantly have doubt and often, you know, the best work, is the work i almost scrap halfway through i'm so convinced it's not working and then because of that maybe you sort of you know, kind of push it a bit hard i don't know what it is but certainly i think it's a fine balance you need to have enough confidence to really keep at it when it's going badly and not give up because uh, that's a it's a classic thing that it's easy to be disheartened and feel that um something you know things are never going to turn out well but at the same time, you you, you need to have enough self doubt that you feel that there's room for improvement, and you, you know you keep going back to something and not believe that the first attempt at something is good enough. And so, you know, I I think I think that there's the same thing as what you're saying. I think that there's this really, um, I think all creative people naturally have this sort of dichotomy between having a sense that they you know enjoy something and probably have some sort of propensity for doing it, but also have this you know. Nagging and sometimes paralyzing self doubt, which can delay and sometimes completely disrupt you actually getting on and doing it.
0: Yeah, because it's a risky business, isn't it? Being creative, there's no sort of mathematical equation to make something good. It's just sort of, I don't know if you ever feel like you're channeling something. I've talked to a lot of musicians about that. They feel like they're just sort of the conduit for something wonderful coming through them. Do you ever have that sort of feeling?
1: Certainly, the, because some of the most wonderful things are where you just don't remember any of the decisions you made when you were doing it. Oh. You look back and say, How did I, Where did that come from? It is an amazing thing. And I, you can see it very much with musicians where some days they'll just be so prolific. I think we talked about it, didn't we? And like we both know people who could do that.
0: Yeah, it's amazing what a, what a wonderful feeling I can only dream of it. Do so you like talking of self doubt there? Then I've interviewed so many incredible people on this podcast. You know, top 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 of their game, naturally skilled, hardworking people who still have a sense of imposter syndrome. And I wonder if because you didn't go to art school, you didn't study art, if you've ever experienced that imposter syndrome or had to deal with outside snobbery or judgment because of that. And and if that's impacted you in any way,
1: I, I'm sure there's a bit of that. I think I think also some of it comes back to the school. And you know, even because probably a lot of it was the ADD meant that I was constantly forgetting to do homework or revise for exams or and generally being the one told off and in the bottom half of the class all the way through. And it didn't occur to me until years after I left that hang on, actually that was a you know, I was at a very academic school and those things were not necessarily always the most important things in life. And we, yeah, we as humans, we dwell on our, you know, on criticism and on things that go wrong, because the, and I'm guessing that's a, a, some, in some way part of our survival instinct. It must have been important to yeah, in case to really analyze things that seem wrong in case they were going to cause us more problems in the future, rather than be complacent about things. But it is something where you know the, you, there's this delicate balance of kind of having enough confidence to keep going at something where you don't really know where you're going, and it almost inevitably the best work the best creative work is where you're not just following a template or what someone else has done but you're exploring something new and you're having to take a risk that it might be a terrible idea you know it often is certainly you know in my I might mean, i think you know all that's happened for me is i was probably lucky enough times early on with things going my way that now i can cope with the rejection when things go badly because i Ooh. feel that it's well you know over the course of a year if it's, you know if i'm slightly up overall on things going well rather than badly then that's that's a good year <laughs>
0: That's a nice way of looking at things. Um, I really enjoy interviewing people, um, obviously. But wh- one of the one of the things that I really love is that I get to completely immerse myself in someone else's story for that moment in time, and and also the lead up to it because I'm, you know, looking into what I might assume about them and what I'm intrigued about and what I'm curious about, and I really enjoy learning other people's coping mechanisms looking at their difficult times looking at how they might have overcome adversity or really had hope in in tough times because I just don't think I don't obsess about my own life as much in those moments I can sort of let it slide and all of the worries dissipate somewhat and I just really enjoy that sort of sense of escapism but it's got a dual aspect of also me learning as well and I wonder if you have a a similar feeling because obviously you're sat opposite someone for hours on end and you are somewhat I guess getting lost in that person because you're not thinking about you you're just thinking about them and what they're about and how to capture that do do you experience that ever
1: certainly uh, that's the thing you're, you're 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 hoping will happen I think also I mean again partly by chance. I think funny enough having having when I started so when I started off really doing this was you know, immediately after having been, you know, obviously quite ill and it was quite well and my dad was at that time was a politician. Uh, and he'd also been involved in sort of sort of very public, uh, kind of embarrassing events and, and that sort of thing. And so we had this thing of having actually having quite publicly gone and my sister had been very ill as well. She was a disability as a result of a brain tumour. And so the um uh, we I had this whole series of things which people knew about, and what happened was I think at that early stage where, you know people might be thinking, "Who's this you know, kind of twenty-three-year-old guy asking me these questions?" Suddenly, they were it was the opposite. It's like therapy for them. They'd immediately unburden themselves because mm. rightly or wrongly, having the sense that you've been through a near-death experience recently and all this very sort of public other stuff meant they felt very immediately able to trust me and the conversation, and even the, probably that I expected we'd have a perspective which i was was, was was considerably more than i actually had at that point but it, it you you it was it, so on the one hand it breaks down barriers with people and then, and another thing was that you suddenly realize everyone's lives are more complicated than than you realized because i think even then and certainly now there's this strange kind of you know pressure to f- 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 Give the impression that our lives are, are sort of blemish free and yeah. going smoothly, and I think social medias kind of um sort of um exaggerated that even more uh may change it's a slight change recently i think since that we're all going through this mad time and we're, well, none of us are able to do the things we would normally do. But I do think that you know, th- 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 this, this is an extra pressure for, you know, obviously it's been well documented, but for the um, a younger generation now, that they didn't know what it was like before all that and didn't build up their confidence in the way they present things to the world at a time when, you know, there was always a bit of that pressure, but it wasn't this thing where you constantly expected to show how great things were all the time to everyone you knew.
0: Truth just breeds truth. Like, I find that, you know, if I'm interviewing someone or if I'm talking about a book or whatever or even with friends like that's what I probably noticed more so like when I've sat with a friend that I've not really gone to a deep place with as soon as you start to offload or talk about something that you feel extremely vulnerable about they just feel that there's an opportunity for them to do it too and perhaps we all want to do that we all you know and you didn't have so much of a choice I guess back in the day with people knowing stuff about you but if you are willing to kind of go there other people are also alleviated and that's really wonderful like we, we all know we should talk more but it's still stuff gets in the way
1: mm. and yeah and vulnerability is good I think you know, we react we, we to when people are overly confident we assume that some things have been completely thought through and you always know, seem to sort of pick holes in them I'm thinking in terms of like how we share ideas creatively in other worlds so I do a lot of work at the moment where in the overlap between the kind of like art and technology and it's so interesting seeing how there's, there's, there there is so, you know, obviously something's very different in those two worlds, but a lot a lot that's very similar and I think one of them is the sort of fragility of ideas that really interesting ideas are very fragile because they're sort of still forming and if you can you know they've got from the sort of like successful um, processes and collaborations whether it creatively or in the sort of tech world especially in this overlap where people feel okay to sort of share things without it being made to feel ridiculous if it is a ridiculous idea because sometimes the difference between something being inspired and being you know completely ridiculous is pretty wafer thin yeah yeah and so you've got to have a sort of atmosphere for all these things where people don't feel insecure and don't feel they'll be ridiculed for getting things wrong or for you know kind of suggesting something which is complete you know they haven't noticed the sort of foolishness or the kind of mistakes in it
0: that's so interesting. I love that because that's something we all need to bear in mind because we're all trying out new things all the time, but we're scared to often admit it or to say it out loud in case we are, I guess, essentially rejected. You know, perhaps that, you know, thought of possible rejection stops us having our greatest idea.
1: And there's a, then in that idea of rejection, there's a sort of an implied certainty that there's a right or wrong way of doing things, which is the opposite yeah. of creativity. You know, creativity is... You know finding alternative ways for doing things and yeah you know, in fact if they if if it's not one of the established norms that's a good thing you know
0: yes yes i totally agree let i, I really want to talk to you i sort of want to backtrack slightly but when, when we were talking about um facial expression and and reading other people and this sort of plays into the whole thing about you having that sort of loose interview experience when you're chatting to someone because of course part of your job is to have an understanding of this person and what they're about and how they might react facially, how they move, what they're feeling. How much of that comes from the eyes? Because again, you know, we've all had conversations in the last five years where someone's been on their iPhone, although they're talking to us. I've probably done it to my husband today, quite frankly, but we're all multi-skilling and it's sort of the etiquette's a bit blurred these days. Like, is it okay to kind of take your phone to dinner and be looking at it a bit? You know, we're all kind of blurring the line slightly. And sometimes we do miss out on that intense, amazing eye contact that can be so powerful. And we've all felt it in like important moments in our lives. But when you're painting, what are you getting from that? Like, what can you sense from someone's eyes alone? We all know they're sort of the, the window to the soul or whatever romantic notion you want to put to it. But they are such an important part of how we connect with another person. What are you getting from that?
1: Yeah, obviously, as a portraitist, I've always kind of, I think, had an instinct for this thing, but I never really understood it. So in recent years, I've really kind of explored it a bit more. So yeah, on a fundamental level, one of the the first decisions you make with a portrait is whether someone's going to be looking straight out or not. Um, we're all doing these calls now, where you kind of, where you're looking at the other person is slightly off where the camera is, and mm. therefore, you know, <laughs> we're sort of that's near annoying. eye contact. I wonder if we do it too much, whether we're going to reset our brains to assume that's oh, more, more what we need more than the actual contact. And actually, so I mean, the simple way of the paintings. When someone's making direct eye contact for better, better expression, it makes for a more powerful painting. It's more arresting. It's you get it's a, maybe a more immediate and often powerful sense of the personality it's engaging obviously uh but it's also oddly more confrontational when you go in you, you, if you've if there's a portrait where, where someone's looking out it's if, if it impacts on you in a different way you feel you're forced to engage with it whereas if someone's looking into the picture some way i've noticed in exhibitions that people will spend more time looking at those
0: god how funny i've never thought of that i've never thought of that and i've probably done it
1: and so there's some science behind this. There's um When someone t- looks at you, it actually slows down your cognitive processes. You actually are less able to think about other things. Your brain literally... And you can see how that must have happened in an evolutionary way, because if you're out in the sort of savannas or the kind of like in the wilds or in like potentially hostile world, then someone suddenly being aware of your presence meant you had to make a decision whether it was okay to stick around or do a runner. And so that's one sort of like obvious way in which that eye contact is an important thing there's other things like you know there's lie detection you know people people stop stop breaking eye contact that's often because you know you know the classic thing of looking shifty for people looking sort of sideways but there's also that whole thing there there's another funny thing which I've, i don't know if you've heard about the um uh the fact that when there's a sort of theory that when when people are trying to recall you ask them a question about you know where, where, what happened on whatever day if they look sideways, they're trying to remember. If they look up, they're making it up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no way! Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm writing that down. I
1: haven't found much to work out why that is. I don't know if it's because the two, there's, I think there's two sort of theories. One is that, you know, if you're looking sideways, you're looking for prompts in the real world that might remind you. And if you're looking up, you're trying to avoid that because you're trying to clear your head and then make something up quickly. Um, or there's another theory, which is it, where you the direction you look activates different parts of your brain. So you remember different things or you're able to kind of, yeah, it kind of kicks off different thought processes.
0: I'm having some fun with this one. I've got some people to quiz. (laughs) I need this lockdown to be over. I've got some people to quiz and I'm going to be getting my notepad out. That is amazing because it's funny. I have noticed when I'm sat with someone in real life. And I'm, you know, when I write out these interviews, I've got a structure of where I want to go. And I'm not the sort of person that could wing it. I could never just roll up and think, I'll just chat about any old thing. I really like to have a bit of a story and a narrative. And that does mean that cognitively, I need to be really switched on to remember where the hell I'm going. If I do go off piste, what happens next? And I love eye contact, but much more so when the person's answering because I'm really locked in with what they're saying. And often when I'm thinking of the question, I do find myself flitting around the room and I'm like, God, so irritating. Why am I not just looking at them and engaging with them? And that's just really, you know, that's the final piece of the puzzle for me. I, I understand my own brain a bit better today after that. That's so fascinating because it is such an intense feeling, isn't it? Having eye contact. And maybe that again is something to do with just cognitively us Everything's slowing down. That must feel slightly unnerving on every level to us.
1: Mm. And it's, 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 you're absolutely right about that. And, and you take in so much visually all at once, but then you forget it much faster. If you hear something, so you know, obviously, kind of visual communication sense is, is, is not based on time. So, whereas kind of oral communication is you know, the order in which you say things is the order in which you hear them. And that's whereas when you look at something, you can choose to look at any part of your, what's in your field of view first. And not look at other things, or you can scan it. There you are know, there's lots of different ways to do it. But at the same time, as far as I know, the, the kind of like things that are you know in sort of text form or, or sound, you know, com- you know, words, conversation, those stay in your brain much longer than what you see. So you know, it, it's actually it, it's, it's it's a bit more sort of indelibly sort of pr- printed at least, at least for a little while.
0: Does that lend itself to how you've, you know, you've got this beautiful style. We've talked a lot about style when we've been doing our portrait series because it's something I'm so interested in. I've not necessarily established my own style yet, but it's something that I think about a lot and I certainly experiment with. But your style now is so recognisable and anyone that's an art fan or not will look at a picture and know that it's one of yours and and one of your um, sort of the defining parts of of what you do is these lovely sections that that aren't there things that you leave the observer to I guess piece together themselves or or you know add something else that they feel is relevant how do you make that decision as to what's important you know obviously you've got a lot of the faces usually very finely done but there will be sections of hair missed out occasionally or sections of their body what's the decision making around that
1: um, I think it sort of happened gradually, really. I think, I, like you, I was experimenting a lot early on with very different kinds of ways of painting. And I found I was never kind of fully satisfied either with doing things which were completely abstract or gestural, but nor with things that were very, very finely realised and precise, uh, especially not when they were to like the edge to edge of the picture was kind of rendered in the same way. And I think that so over time I realised that's also how I... I think, and I think a lot of us sort of remember images isn't in minute detail the way a photograph sees things. I think we've been confused by photography in the 20th century because it's been such a brilliant and easy way of capturing things that we've started to mistakenly think that that's actually how we see. Um, yeah. Because actually you don't take in everything that you're looking at in huge detail. You, you're you quickly and selectively editing. And so I guess what I'm doing is doing it representing an exaggerated version of that in how you could perhaps interpret what I was looking at at that time, which I think works particularly well with portraits because we actually do tend to focus more on the face and the bits that are key to expressions so of the eyes and the mouth and certain peripheral details, You know, and as we were saying before, body language, certain clues to someone's gender and age and how they're what they're trying to say about themselves through how they're looking and standing and what they're wearing. Um, but you don't need every part of it. You don't need everything that's in the background. You don't need. You know, you can certainly u- use elements in order to kind of like tell more of a story. And you might sort of put in a bit of jewelry or an object or something which tells a bit more of someone's story. But you don't want that to be m- more important than the things we would naturally react to if we were there in front of someone, which is first and foremost, yeah, those those key things. You know, who are the, who's this person? Are they a threat or a friend what are they mm. What are they expecting next? what's going to happen? You know all that sort of thing which we we get from a few little p- bits of Im- information in, in our sort of visual field you know interpreted very precisely
0: I think that's why I love portrait so much more than I love looking at a photograph of someone because there is that element of you getting lost in it because you're piecing it together you know in your own way and you're coming to a conclusion it's not sort of presented to you here's the person these are the ideas around them you're allowed to like reading a book for me is more thrilling than watching a film because again i'm piecing things together and I, i find that much more exciting johnny thank you so much that was so lovely talking to you um i'm just so glad that that we're getting to work together, being such a fan, it's like a, it's a huge deal for me that you're painting me and I'm just mega excited, so thank you so much.
1: No, thank you, it's a great pleasure and it's lovely having have been doing a painting of someone who's interested and knowledgeable about what I'm doing because I think that makes for a kind of, I mean it puts a bit more pressure on me, but it also <laughs> makes for a kind of uh, a really, really interesting discussion as well. Um, so thank you.
0: Oh, thank you, Johnny. Now, look, if you're interested in seeing the finished portrait, that jonathan has done of me you can see all the sittings and their final work right now just head to his website jonathanyo.com. there's a link in the show notes also i've popped a couple of those videos and the final portrait on my instagram account as well it is ridiculously amazing thank you johnny it was an honor to take part in that And you can discover many more fascinating speakers at the Happy Place Virtual Festival. It's still running. It's running till the 12th of July. It's completely free. You just sign up right now. Head to happyplacefestival.com. There's so much to see. Workshops, classes, talks, etc. A big thanks again to Johnny and to the producer Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And to you for listening. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much. Big love. See you soon.